The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Levy. Presenting Book 3, World Well Lost. Respect the Wind, Part 1. Written by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. Read by Veronica Jagan. The CCCP had changed substantially in the last few weeks. For one thing, Hensel had worked wonders, turning the old building into a real working headquarters. For another, there were more people here now than just Untermensch, Chug, People's Blade, Soviet, and the Commissar. A plane load of CCCP members had arrived to media fanfare, mostly just newsjackals looking to capitalize on the controversy that surrounded Atlanta's newest Reds. They were a mixed lot of the very old and the young, for the most part led by a startlingly handsome and charismatic man about the same age as Red Savior, who announced to the female reporter that all was but swooning over him that she could call him Molotov. John had learned that these were older Soviet metas from World War II and the Cold War era, and shiny new young socialists that Savior said, enigmatically, were unconventional and thus did not fit into the supernaut defense cadre. He wasn't sure what that meant. The supernauts seemed to be mostly armored metas under the supervision of workers' champion, whom Savior called Uncle Boryets, or something like that, and Savior's own father. There seemed to be a lot of shouting in this relationship, and John got this distinct impression that the CCCPers that had arrived on the shore had been more unacceptable than unconventional, those whose powers were waning and had retired, and those whose powers were erratic and not yet under control. He had to wonder how many metas the Russians had lost. He'd heard numbers bandied about of the Echo Ops loss that ranged from a half to three-fourths. Certainly the numbers were bad if Echo was reduced to taking petty criminals now. Maybe not so petty. He'd heard things about THE Red Genie, for instance, during his days on the run. If that was true, and if the Russians had lost a proportionate amount, he couldn't imagine how any of them would be unacceptable. Except, maybe, in their loyalty to Red Savior. Or maybe their unwillingness to compromise their socialist ideals to Batova's new way of doing business. Maybe a bit of both. Things were finally starting to shape up, though. With the increase in manpower came an increase in the amount of work that the CCCP could do. This included expanding the group's patrol routes to include the surrounding neighborhoods, like John's. The CCCP's attached soup kitchen was working around the clock, serving hearty meals to anyone that came by. A free, albeit limited, medical clinic that asked no questions about where injuries came from was operated by Soviet and whatever off-duty CCCPers she could wrangle. He could have used both in his underground days. Maybe if he'd had them, he'd already be one of the comrades. Hard to say. Jonas's community garden had been not quite ruthlessly taken over by the twins, a pair of sonic metas, and the strange Gothi Upir, who had all come off a farm commune and had forgotten more about vegetable gardening than the entire neighborhood had ever known. Upir was even a botanist, which seemed odd for someone who looked like a vampire. Chalk white hair, skin so pale that it looked almost painted on like a china doll, proper little square-framed socialist glasses clearly handed out by the state, the kind that hadn't been in fashion since John Lennon died. 
BCGs is what they would have been called in basic, birth control glasses. Upir never wore anything but shadow gray and black, always wore gloves, and was so self-contained, except when she was working with plants, that she would scarcely know she was there. The only bit of color about her was the scarlet CCCP star with the anachronistic gold hammer and sickle in the center that she wore over her left breast. And Perrin, an engineer before his metapowers over electricity had manifested in the siege of Stalingrad, had personally rigged some kind of electrical feed to every building in Jonas's neighborhood, while his friend and fellow, old man, who was a woman, though you hardly know it by looking at her, Rusalka, had seen to it that there was a clean source of fresh water coming in across the destruction corridor. The CCCP was truly making an impact on the surrounding area. The headlines in the newspaper and on the television had ceased to be totally hostile and were slowly becoming a shade of neutral. During the flurry of activity, John had barely had any time to acquaint himself with any of his new comrades, save for a few. One in particular stuck out in John's estimation like a raw turnip in the middle of a posh buffet. The Soviet bear. Of course, none of the media had ever spoken to Soviet Bear, which was just as well. John had first run into Bear while working on the CCCP's run-down, third-hand, and utterly ancient Soviet generators. They were supposed to be World War II surplus. He believed it. He'd run into Bear because Bear was supposed to be the only person who understood the damned things. That wasn't strictly true, but Perrin was still rigging the neighborhood electrics, and for John at least that had been priority. The man looked like a steampunk enthusiast wet dream. Except for his head, shoulders, and arms, he was almost completely mechanical. His body, if that term even fit anymore, was made out of blue titanium, painted over with flaking Soviet military gray paint. Hydraulics and tubes spouted all over his joints and torso. The centerpiece was off-center in his chest, a glowing, crimson, gyroscope-looking heart. The grayed-out hair, Ivan mustache, and officer's cap completed the look. The old Russian also wore an eye patch over his right eye, no doubt a souvenir from some past fight. Though, given the bear's reputed age, which fight was up for debate? John was trying to remove a panel in order to access the inner workings of the generator when he heard bear. No, not overage. Must use socket to me wrench for maintenance paddle. John turned to see Bear, leaning against the doorway with a very, very large clear jug in his hand. Even from several feet away, John could smell the rot-gut vodka that filled it. Had to repair these when I ran camp in Ukraine. Bear shifted uncomfortably, coughing into a handkerchief that he had in his free hand. John noticed that it had a few spots of blood on it, despite the Russian being careful to hide the handkerchief. Where are matters? Name is Vladimir Pavlovich Polokov, the Soviet bear. Sovietsky medvet. You may call me Pavel. Americans have many troubles pronouncing Russian names. I assume you are our newest American comrade, eh? That's right. He extended his hand. John Murdoch, pleased to meet you. Pavel shook his hand weakly. John could feel the gnarled joints enveloped almost completely in his own hand. Now, you said something about me using the wrong wrench for this job. Uh... John let it hang in the air for Bear to finish. Ah, suck it to me, wrench. Is that how you say it yet? 
John thought for a few moments before it clicked. Oh, you mean a socket wrench. Thanks for the tip, Pavel. If you want to stick around, I could use the help getting this jalopy up and running. It's been mostly guesswork for me so far. For the next few hours, John talked with Pavel while they disassembled and repaired the antique generator. John mostly listened. Bear went on about his exploits during the Great Patriotic War, his experiences with Lenin and Stalin, and a plethora of dirty and lewd jokes. The man was a compendium of bad puns. It was a good thing Bear was not patrolling the neighborhood alone. Though it was unlikely that any of the folks hereabouts would know what a kulak was, or being insulted by being referred to as a Ukrainian. Today the pack consisted of John, Upir, Bear, and Untermensch. John wasn't entirely clear on what Upir could actually do, but the commissar seemed confident of her ability in a fight, so he was willing to go along with it. The four of them were riding in a pair of the CCCP's issue Earl Patrol motorcycles, sidecar attached. They were cheaper on the ever-so-scarce gas, which had gone rare in city ever since the attacks, and would take more punishment than WW3 could throw at them. John and Untermensch were riding in the bikes, with Bear and Dupier riding in the sidecars, respectively. Bear was continually griping about how it was below him to be riding in the sidecar. He cradled an ancient and well-used PBSH-41 in his arms, cooing to it in Russian occasionally. This wasn't John's first motorcycle patrol with the CCCP, so he was fairly relaxed. He made sure to stay alert, however. Falling into a routine was the easiest way to have something bad happen. And, of course, as soon as he was done processing that thought, the routine was broken. Yadiga's voice blurted over the comms. Patrol Hotel 1, this is Control. Receiving a report from Gamayun. Stand by. Untermensch, who was leading the squad, signaled for everyone to come to a stop and rock up. Gamayun was one of the newer Russians to come to Atlanta. Named after a mythical prophetic bird in Russian folklore, she was one of the CCCP's trump cards. She was a true blue remote viewer. Anywhere in a ten-mile radius, she could be damn near omniscient. Not in predicting things, but in seeing what was going on there. She used an inverted shot glass over a map to narrow her focus. She was limited to one sort of filter at a time, though. Right now she was used as an early warning system, immediately alerting the CCCP about any wrongdoing or incoming threats in their area of responsibility. John remembered Savior's reaction when she came in off the plane. She had looked at the frail little blonde and grunted, This only favor workers' champion is doing me. That passed for high approval, apparently. It was less than a minute before Soviet was on the comms again. Immediate action. We have a large group of reds, northwest of your patrol's position, heading south along the main thoroughfare. Traveling on motorcycles, Intel says they are very hostile and currently using deadly force. A new voice on the comms. John recognized it immediately as the commissar's smoke horse and alto. I am advising you that current law is no deadly force may be used by metas or non-metas unless life is in danger. Then her tone took on a darkly wicked tenor. So use your own discretion about life being in danger. Untermensch drew a circle in the air with his index finger, signaling John to start his motorcycle back up. We're right. The two earls roared to life, 
just wafting into the air behind their mufflers. Bear laughed heartily, chambering around into his antique submachine gun. Upir smiled thinly, reaching into the sidecar, and came up with a Russian police-issue KS-23 shotgun. At John's glance, she shrugged. Rubble bullets, comrade, she shouted. I am not crazy old man like Bear. John shook his head. He didn't believe in less-than-lethal munitions, since if you were forced to shoot someone, you sure as hell better kill them. Then gunned the throttle, rocketing along the road behind Untermensch. It was a good thing these earls were as sturdy as advertised. Unter was riding over piles of debris and ruined pavement with reckless abandon, bouncing both Upir and Bear violently in the sidecars. Signaling with his right hand, he made a sharp turn down an alley. John followed, staggering his bike off from Unter's path and allowing the distance to grow slightly between them. No sense in both bikes being taken out with one shot. Or grenade. I really hope they aren't packing grenades. The Rebs were known for being rip-snorting crazy. Drugs, prostitution, and guns were some of the more tame ventures they were hooked into before the invasion. Now, it seemed they aimed to build themselves a little Mad Max-style kingdom. In a flash of daylight, the patrol was out of the alley and into the street, screeching their bikes to a halt. Less than a mile to their left were the Rebs. Had to be at least twenty of them. Shotguns, rifles, pistols, and firebombs. Every one of them was armed and blasting everything they could see. Luckily, they were entering the neighborhood from the direction of one of the destruction corridors, unpopulated. But it wouldn't be long until they reached areas where folks were actually living. At this time of day, the streets would have plenty of people on them, going about their lives. The CCC peers dismounted from their motorcycles, forming a line facing the oncoming Rebs. Unter was the first to speak. We find cover, then hold them here until backup can arrive. We need to keep them from bypassing us. He surveyed the area for a few very tense seconds, then focused on an abandoned building to their right. That one, Pavel, Murdoch, take it down. The building had been previously gutted in the Nazis' invasion. The side facing them was open to the street. Without wasting a moment, all four of the CCC peers positioned themselves between it and the reps. Bear moved forward, adjusting the gauntlets on his arms. John noticed that the old Russian's mechanical heart, still suspended and spinning in his chest, sped up moments before the bear fired. In a staggering blast of light, two coherent beams of energy lashed out from Bear's fists, striking key load-bearing columns left in the building. It began to topple uneasily behind them. John pulled his scarf up over his mouth and then relaxed the concentration. A heavy wave of flame jetted from his own gloved hands, engulfing the ruins just as they hit the street. Dust and smoke filled the air. It would take a bit to dissipate, and might provide them a limited amount of concealment. The rems were closing in. John moved left along with Bear, taking cover behind a water tower that had fallen from a roof and landed on its side. Untermensch and Upier were positioned ahead and to the right of John's location, the two of them on opposite ends of a sedan that had been partially melted. The Rebs were less than one hundred yards away. The roar of their choppers and the staccato clatter of gunfire filled the air, punctuated by their cursing and whooping. John thought for a moment, then spoke into his headset. Boss, how much did the commissar get these bikes for? Unter looked back to Jean, an expression of puzzlement on his face. We are on strict budget. She is getting them surplus. Good to know. While Unter was talking, 
John had taken a small roll of 100-mile-an-hour tape from one of his belt pouches. Engaging the brakes on his arrow, he revved the throttle up before taping it down. Just as the revs were within 50 yards, he released the brakes, sending the motorcycle screeching down the center of the revs' column. Their bikes scattered out of the way of the oncoming Earl, with one of the revs eating pavement hard. Eyeballing the distance so that it was just at the rear of the revs' formation, John ducked out from behind cover, blasting plasma at the gas tank. In a brilliant fireball, the Earl exploded, sending the sidecar tumbling like a child's toy. The reds were now blocked off from both ends, debris and CCC piers in front, and a fiery wreckage behind them. The Rebs, screaming, hollering, and shouting curses, immediately returned fire. Rounds impacted all over the place as the bikers tried to provide half-hearted covering fire while they dismounted their motorcycles. One crazy pair continued to ride towards Hunter's position. The Reb-riding pylon was wielding two Molotov cocktails in his hands. Upir and Bear both peered around cover with their weapons, firing almost simultaneously. Rubber slugs, and 7.62 by 25-millimeter rounds lanced towards the bikers, striking both of them and tumbling the firebug off the vehicle. Both of the Rebs and their bikes skidded to a halt, dead. The passenger was on fire. Between Bear's bullets and the impact with the ground, his Molotovs had shattered and doused him with burning fluid. The remaining Rebs finally found cover, some behind their bikes, others among the debris. Now it was time for the real firefight. John, Bear, and Upier took shots at targets they could hit, blasting away concrete, brick, and motorcycles to reach their targets. Several bikes caught on fire, with another one exploding spectacularly while a pair of rebs were still behind it. This was a ranged fight. Unter didn't look very happy. Nasrat, fascist is There was more growling in Russian, and finally Unter's temper reached the breaking point. Tovarich! Keep them pinned. I need a workout. Without another word, Unter broke from cover and sprinted across the street to an alley, disappearing down it before the rebs could train their weapons on him. John and Bear both immediately began to lay down a withering amount of fire, dozens of blasts of flames augmented by concussive energy bursts and submachine gun rounds. Upir manually chambered a round into her shotgun, peered around her cover, and then popped up over the top to fire a burst directly into the center of the rebs' side. The impact point exploded into a small cloud of white powdery gas. John recognized it as a specialty lilac round for the KS-23, tear gas mixed with a CS agent. The rebs closest to the burst immediately began to cough and tear up, mucus streaming from their noses and mouths as the chemicals irritated their membranes. John speared a single reb that was trying to advance to cover with a lance of fire. The man went down without a sound, crashing to the ground as if he were a marionette whose strings had been cut. The Rebs were starting to get desperate. The fight had lasted for less than a minute, but in that minute they had lost over half their numbers. Before John could fire at his next target, he saw a dark blur drop down from a rooftop, right over the position of the largest group of Reds. John felt as if the big Russian had touched down in their midst, crying, Ura! 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 The Rebs, astounded, had no time to react before he set upon them. Hands flashing in terrible, brutal strikes, Georgie almost literally cut through them. Broken bones and splashing blood resulted wherever he struck. Across the street, a smaller group of Rebs noticed what was going on, preparing to fire into the melee. John quickly tapped Bear's shoulder, directing his attention on the alleyway's mouth. Nodding, Bear put down his submachine gun, opting to use his energy blasts instead. Another cacophonous roar, his gauntlets discharged. 
The energy bolt impacted the building directly behind the Rebs, sending tons of bricks and steel crashing onto their screaming forms. And as quickly as it had started, it was over. All of the Rebs were dead, riddled with bullets, burned or beaten to death. Untermensch strode down the street towards his comrades, a proud smirk on his face. Threat neutralized, comrades. Let us clean them up and report back to HQ. A barely visible blur rushed through the flames behind Hunter, clipping his left side and sending him spinning pirouette style. Before any of the CCCPers could register what the blur was, it had appeared at Hupier's side. It was one of the Rebs, shirtless, wearing a sleeveless leather vest, stained blue jeans, and a beard that would have put Father Time to shame. You stinking commies just wrote you a check your asses can't catch. Drop your guns, or the chick gets a permanent smile. Unter had recovered, and was circling to the biker's left, trying to get behind him. Not so fast, sucker. Name's Bad Boy. I talk fast, and I think even faster. You get right with your pals, or she bleeds. I ain't gonna ask you again, chump. To emphasize his point, he drew his knife. Unsurprisingly, a bowie almost large enough to match a machete, against Dupier's neck. A line of blood stood out against her too pale skin. Last chance. Drop the guns, or I drop her. Not going to happen, Svinia. Unter walked over to stand next to John and Bear. Here is your last warning. Put down your knife and come quietly, or we carry you to base. Choice is yours, Amerikanski. He stood nonchalantly. Bear had recovered his PPSH and now had it trained on the Reb. Strangely, Upir was smiling, a little Mona Lisa-like smile, an I've-got-four-aces sort of smile. Bad Bowie obviously couldn't see it. Nor did he seem to notice that instead of wringing her hands in fear, she was calmly and methodically taking off her gloves. In fact, he had no idea anything was happening. In fact, he had no idea anything at all was happening, until she said quietly, I think you do not want to hurt a little pale girl, Amerikanski, and laid both of her white hands on his wrist. I am not telling you my name, I think. It is Upir. Do you know what that means? She didn't wait for a reply. It's meaning vampire. John blinked and shook his head hard. The moment she touched the man, it was as if all the light around them was being sucked towards them. He'd been in an eclipse once. It was like that. Not at all like sunset or twilight, for the source of light was still high in the sky. Rather as if all the light in the area was swiftly being siphoned away. Bad Bowie went white, as white as Upir. His eyes rolled up on his head, his knees shook, and Dupier slipped deftly away from him and ran towards John and Bear. The moment she let go of him, the peculiar light effect stopped. As she reached John's side, the man shook himself like a dog and recovered, snarling. That's it, you damned reds. I'm gonna make a pair of boots out of each of your hides. Hunter leaned to his right, speaking softly. Take him alive, comrades. He may prove useful for intelligence. 
Upir looked oddly pink. Her eyes sparkled dangerously. She looked high, or drunk. Quickly, she clasped one bare hand on John's wrist, the other on Bear's shoulder. John felt a surge of vitality, which tasted like the Reb. It was the only way John could describe it. It was nothing like the source of wellness and aliveness he had gotten from the seraphim. This was stolen, not gifted. The source was tainted with evil, and in comparison, the source was a bucket of polluted water beside the free ocean. Upir lost her flush and that dangerous beauty. She moved behind John, but did not put her gloves back on again. Bear was the first to move, breaking the stair down. I can't believe I'm missing Matlock for this. The Reb charged the group. They broke ranks, with John and Unter on one side opposite of Upir and Bear. Bowie went for Upir first, slashing the air with his knife. Upir sidestepped him, brushing her hand along his bare arm, and Bear rushed forward, plunging both of his energy-shrouded hands at the Reb. Bowie, not as fast but still way too fast, dodged one of Bear's fists with the second glancing his shoulder. The Reb spun around, his vest ripped away where Bear hit him. He made a backhanded slash, scoring Bear's titanium ribs with a huge knife. Upir moved in again, her fingertips brushing Bad Bowie's knife hand. He slowed fractionally as she slipped away. John, keeping the pressure up, darted in. He was the one that was closest to matching speed for speed with the Reb. Controlling his breathing, his enhancements kicked in. He was next to the Reb, dropping down and slamming an elbow into his stomach as he completed the spin Bear had sent him into. The blow knocked all of the wind out of Bowie, but he was still in the fight. An open-palmed, lightning-fast strike to John's shoulder pushed him away. Distance was exactly what John didn't want in this fight. It would give the Reb room to work with his blade. John closed in again, planting a foot hard on the Reb's instep. Down came the knife in response. John hadn't pulled himself in close enough in time. The knife was going to get planted square in his chest. Another flurry of movement. I'm not dead. The knife was inches away from John's chest, held in place, stabbed through Unter's right forearm. The Russian man smiled, then chopped at Bowie's throat. The Reb staggered backwards, choking. Time was slowed down for John. He saw the knife slide out of Georgie's forearm, and saw the wound there begin to heal almost immediately, the bleeding slowing to a very tiny trickle. The CCC peers didn't waste any time. Bear keyed his gauntlets, firing at the asphalt directly behind the dazed Reb. The ground erupted behind him, sending him stumbling straight back towards John and Unter. John ignited both of his fists, getting off the axe by taking an immediate step to his right. Unter shifted his stance, allowing Bowie to pass between John and himself. Both of them hit the Reb at the same time, John igniting the man's clothing, and Unter planting a firm kick to his midsection. Bowie flew backwards, landing hard on the ground. He was completely disoriented, half-heartedly rolling onto the ground to extinguish the fires covering his body. Upir glided towards him as if she was speed-skating. She stopped his roll with one foot planted on his chest, and didn't so much bend down as make a motion like a striking snake with both hands outstretched. She clamped one on each ear. Once again, that light-falling inward effect started, and the flames snuffed out as if he'd had a canister of fire retardant emptied on him. 
His eyes rolled completely up in his head this time. He went white as chalk and passed out entirely. Upir stood up, whirled with unnatural speed, and this time clamped both her hands on Georgie's wrists. Her hands were shaking, like someone who'd had an overdose of speed. She kept her hands on Unter for longer than she had on John and Bear. When she let go, she wiped both of them on her black trousers with a look of disdain and quickly put on her gloves again. John turned the defeated Reb over, fastening flexi-cuffs to his meaty hands. Hefting the large bowie knife, Bear secured it to his belt. Untermensch surveyed the area, then keyed his headset. CCCP control. Area is being secure. One prisoner, metahuman, calling himself a bad boy. Hostiles use lethal force, replied with conventional weapons with extreme prejudice. Hostiles, <laughs> Hostiles neutralized. Request fire suppression team and city wagon for dead. He paused a moment. Also, be telling Commissar we'll be needing requisition forms for New York. He clicked off the comm before anyone could reply. Horror show work, Tovarici. Now, let us police up bodies and get to HQ. Long day of forms ahead of us, da? And excoriation by Commissar for Europe, Upir murmured. John shrugged. What? It got the job done. Eh, besides, we can say the Rebs did it. John eyed several of the still-intact motorcycles that the Rebs had rode in on. There were a few very choice Harleys. Upir tilted her head to the side. Duh. And building full of bullets fell on them, yet? Also mysterious exploding chemicals. And must have been incendiary grenades and saddlebags. Bear nodded sagely. Duh. Rebs are sneaking, yet? He paused for a moment, realization dawning on his face. You are to be using Americansky sarcasm, Upir. Her deadpan was perfect, except for the little Mona Lisa smile. I am not knowing what you mean, Vladimir. In making observation, I surely repeat to Americansky authorities. Pavel, Bear's preferred name, guffawed in response. Just as well, comrade. You must not have sophisticated sense of humor, that guy. As the group began to walk back towards the carnage, he piped up again. Did this old bear happen to tell you one about the man in bar with frog? You've been listening to The Secret World Chronicle, written by authors Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, and Dennis Lee. Read and produced by Veronica Jaguer. Featuring music by Antarabay. Investigating the Phantom Signal, courtesy of MusicAlley.com.